for what we need this morning. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you again. Thanks for coming back. We never want to take it for granted that you actually return to church. And go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. We are presently enjoying a short seven-part series together entitled Our Gospel, DNA, and Culture. And I thank God for already how this is impacting you, just talking to some of the GC leaders about how God is meeting you. This whole course is designed, this series is designed to not only help us see the roots of our church, which is knowing, applying, and proclaiming the gospel, but more than that, what, what does that look like? What is the culture that being gospel-centered really brings? And so, so far, we've looked at humility, and we've looked at godliness, and today we are going to be looking at fellowship. If you are an old-timer to sovereign grace, I trust this reminder blesses you. And if you're new, I trust that the Lord meets you in the preaching of his word. And so Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read from verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. And Lord, I pray then that it is wielded amongst us today that it would have an effect on our lives. Lord, would we be encouraged by your word? Would we be comforted by your word? Would we be taught by your word? Lord, I thank you that it is sufficient for all that we need. So Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as Christians, as I've said many times before, we really are in the race of our lives. And it's right here in this letter of Paul's, Paul's letter to Ephesians that in the closing chapters 4, 5, and 6, we get to see up close and personal just what that race actually looks like, what it involves, what it means to run for the Lord Jesus Christ all the days of our lives. And so in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, we learn that this race will involve the pursuit of holiness. It will involve becoming more like Jesus Christ. It will involve putting off the old self, being renewed in the spirit of our minds, and putting on the new self. This race will also involve the pursuit of humility. The whole premise of considering others more important than ourselves. And then giving our resources and our time and our energy and our gifts for the building up of the local church for the glory of God, the city on a hill that is truly called to be. And this race will involve the pursuit of godly relationships, whether that be husband or wife or parent or child or employee to employer or to believer to unbeliever. The back end of Ephesians covers all these different things and it helps us see, listen, your old self wants to lead relationships quite differently. But now as Christians, it needs to be different now. Our homes and our families and our workplace and our communities, we're called by the grace of God to make a difference in those things. And what you learn in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 
is this really is the greatest race of our lives. It is an adventure, it is exhilarating, and it is going to be hard. Understanding that we're called to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's obviously and understandably not always going to be a walk in the park. This is not a fun run for Jesus. It is a race. And that's what I so appreciate and thank God for about Ephesians chapter 2. Because right here in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're looking at today, prior to Paul touring us around this great race in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he first of all helps us see a great means. A great means that's going to help us run well in this race. A great means that we all need to be able to run in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. And that great means, as we see there in verses 19 through 22, are, listen, each other. The great means that God has given us to run well in this race are those around you this morning. So he tells us, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's who you used to be. Before you became a Christian, you were just strangers and aliens to one another. Foreigners, strangers, aliens. You had nothing really to do with one another. But now, having put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now fellow citizens and members of the household of God. His point is this, in context of the whole letter, What he's trying to help us see is simply this, that if you truly want to run well in this race, then quite literally, you need each other. You're no longer strangers and aliens. Now you're fellow citizens and members of the household of God. Theologian Bruce Milne says it this way. He says, The Christian life, as biblically defined, is inescapably corporate. The bulk of New Testament teaching on the Christian life, including major sections on holiness, occur in letters to corporate groups, to churches. All the major exhortations to holy living are plural. And similarly, all the New Testament promises of victory are corporate. In other words, the apostles envisaged the Christian life and Christian sanctification in the context of loving and caring fellowship. See, the Bible has no grounds, there is no picture anywhere in the Bible of like lone ranger Christianity. Jesus and me, I got this, I'm sweet, thanks very much, I'm just being a Christian just by myself. The Bible has no context, no category for that reality. It only has a category for understanding that that Christians are called to do life together in the context of loving and caring fellowship. J.O. Packer echoes that in his wonderful book, God's Words. He says, we should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercise of private devotions. Now, fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament. It denotes something that is vital to a Christian's spiritual health and central to the church's true life. Listen. For the church will flourish and Christians will be strong only when they're is fellowship. The church will flourish and Christians will be strong only when there is fellowship. What a profound statement. 
Listen, if you and I are going to run well in this race for the glory of the Lord, if we're truly going to give ourselves to running hard for Jesus, then here is the wonderful reality of Scripture. You are going to need each other. And that's why in Sovereign Grace churches all across the world, we're all churches that are being built with small groups. Now, the names may differ across the world, and indeed they do. Around the world, there are care groups, cell groups, home groups, life groups, growth groups, gospel communities, to name but a few. There are a whole different range of different names for what this small group gathering is meant to be called. But it, is, it comes with exactly the same heart around the world. Namely, small groups where we can fellowship and do life together for the glory of God. And so grounded in God's word, places where we can know and be known, where the various one another's of scripture can actually be applied in our lives and worked through, of which there are plenty. Places where we can apply God's word to our lives. And so when it comes to our homes and our relationships and our jobs and our hopes and our missions, we can gather around this word and then seek to apply it to our lives so our lives may be changed. And places then where we can encourage and spur one another on to love and good deeds, to cheer one another on in this great race that we are in. The names may differ around the world, but the heart in them is exactly the same. Small groups, they really matter. John Stott says it this way. He says the value of the small group is that it can become a community of related persons. And in it, the benefit of relatedness cannot be missed, nor its challenges evaded. I do not think it is an exaggeration to say, therefore, that small groups are indispensable for our growth into spiritual maturity. What a staggering statement, don't you think? Small groups are indispensable for our growth into spiritual maturity. I believe that statement is a biblical statement. We are not designed to run this race alone. We're designed to run it together. We need each other. And so church, the question I want to ask you then to consider for your own life this morning is simply this. If fellowship is so important to our race, and small groups then are so indispensable for our growth, that how are you going in seeing the importance of your small group? If all that I've said so far is true, if relationships are so important to our race, and if small groups are so indispensable for our growth, then how are you going at seeing the importance of your Small group. Now listen, this question, I want to assure you, is not designed to be corrective in nature. I've not been ticking off the weeks looking forward to this so that we can talk to you about small groups. That is not the heart nor the intention. This question does not come with correction. As your pastors, we are so thankful to the Lord for the way you see small group ministry and the way you view fellowship and give your lives to it. We love that. Now, that question isn't designed to be corrective in nature, but it is designed to be evaluative in nature. Because here's the reality. We're all busy people, are we not? And in the midst of the busyness of our lives, it's so easy to get bogged down with things, particularly during COVID, where we all start to go on Zoom and so forth, where we lose then perspective of why we're even doing these small groups. 
We lose the vision of what the really importance is. And before you know it, then instead of giving our lives to them and building them, realizing they're so important, we start to just be attenders. And then maybe just occasional attenders. Because we've forgotten why we're even doing this in the first place. This question then isn't designed to be corrective in nature, but it is designed to be evaluative in nature. Our hearts just sometimes need to be dusted off, do they not? And so, if fellowship is so important to our race, and small groups then are so indispensable for our growth, then how are you going at seeing the importance of your small group? Now, I'm aware that can be a difficult question to answer on the spot. It can be a difficult question to get our hands around. And so I have three questions this morning, three points that are going to help us, I think, unpack that a bit more to maybe just help us see how important actually is my small group to me? Question one, how are you going in recognizing your need for your small group for growth? Let's start there. How are you going in recognizing your need for your small group for growth? And my friends, I ask that because if we are really going to grow and become more and more like Jesus Christ as biblically defined, then we really are going to need each other. You can't do it by yourself. So I thought Patrick gave an excellent message just last week on godliness. And he helped us see from Ephesians chapter 5 that godliness is imitating God as his beloved children. Isn't that wonderful? That's what we're called to do in our lives. It's part of the great race. Understanding that we are beloved children of the Lord. We are his treasured possession. He's called us and set us apart for him and that he passionately loves us. We're to then give our lives to imitating him, to becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 25, we see then the process of godliness. How do I actually change? How does this happen when the rubber hits the road? And we see, as we saw last week, that we are then to put off the old self and we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and we are to put on the new self. That's how anybody changes, okay? If you're wondering, how do I change? Well, there it is, not my words, God's words. You put off the old self, you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and then you put on the new self. But here's the thing I don't want us to miss this morning. I don't want us to miss that Ephesians chapter 4 is after Ephesians chapter 2. And that is really important. (laughs) Because Ephesians chapter 4 explains us exactly how we do it. But Ephesians chapter 2 explains to us the context in which we do it. Namely, the local church. The reality that we need others in our lives. It isn't Jesus and me, it's Jesus and we. Do you see? It's not just an individual exercise where we close the door and we go, I'm going to grow in humility. Do you know what will happen if you close the door? You'll be super humble by yourself. You'll sit there by yourself, I'm so humble. It's not being tested. It's not being being aided in any shape or form. We need others. And one of the reasons, my friends, why we need others, because one of the harsh realities of indwelling sin that we all still battle in our lives to different degrees and at different times. One of the harsh realities that is, is that in its deceitfulness, it can so easily deceive us and totally blind us from its very presence. 
So your sin, quite literally, will pretend it's not there. That there's nothing really to change in. Have you ever noticed that it's super easy to see specks of sin in people else's eyes? And yet fail to see the log in our own eyes? Why is that? Well, because our sin actually deceives us. So we can see it in other people, but when it comes to ourselves, we find it much harder to see it. We find it so much harder to discern it. Hebrews 3 talks talks about it at, at length. The deceitfulness of sin. How it masquerades as other things and blinds us from its presence. And so without others in our lives, others who encourage and love and grace are willing to go to us and say, hey, listen, I think I might see something. Without that, I think quite literally, we will be like the man described in the following story. The following story is taken from C.J. Mahaney's book, Humility. And without people helping us, we'll be just like him. Here's the story. As I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, I noticed a finely dressed man in an adjacent table. His Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wingtip shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed moustache. The man sat alone, eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting. As he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious he had an important meeting ahead. The man stood up, and I watched as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. And immediately, I noticed a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed moustache. He was about to go into the world. Dressed in his fineness with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who will tell him? Should I? What if no one did? You know, I've heard that story many times. I've reread CJ's book many times, and every time I read that story, I kind of cringe. <laughs> I mean, what an awkward moment, isn't it? This guy is off. I don't know whether he's about to propose to his wife or whether refers to his fiance or whether it's a, a big date with the business. But any which way, he's dressed to the nines apart from this blob of cream cheese on his face that he can't see. Who is going to tell him? Is he going to be sitting in the meeting halfway through and eventually they go, uh-oh. Off he goes to wherever he goes with a big blob of cream cheese on his face. Listen. Outside of other brothers and sisters who know us and love us, helping us see potential cream cheese on our face, you'll never see it. You'll never notice. When it comes to the subtle and deceitful and blinding effects of sin, if we're truly going to put it off, then we must understand we need others. And part of the way we need others is we need others to help us see cream cheese on our face. I mean, I remember the first time this happened to me just in a, like a relationship outside of my family. As I've told you before, I was in America. And as I've told you before, the story of the two Sundays. Went to Macca's, bought two huge hot fudge Sundays with extra peanuts. Super excited. Identical Sundays. Buy them, get them. And on the way back to the car, I trip and I drop one of them. And so I quickly scoop it back in. 
as best as I can and go but get sit in the car. And my friend says to me, my friend's name's Tom, he says, oh, I feel so bad for you that you dropped it. And I'm like, I know, I, I feel really bad too. I dropped Emma's. <laughs> and he laughed like you did and we drove off and we're just about to pull into the house and he says to me, hey, listen, um, can I ask you, brother, why is it Emma's? And I said, well, I always carry, which is true, I always carry Emma's in my right hand because Emma's always right. And so that's how I remember whether it's doing cups of tea or whatever, it's Emma's always right. And he said, well, well, brother, I wonder if, wonder if maybe that's just really quite selfish. And you just maybe think about yourself, what do you think? I'd never been spoken to quite like that before. It's like, oh, oh. But immediately the Holy Spirit actually did a work in my heart. And I realized he's right. I've just automatically assumed it's, it's hers. I haven't even thought she should have mine. I prefer her. So I went in and I gave... <laughs> and over the last 22 years since that moment, there have been many, many times in God's kindness where people have come to me and helped me see, do you think there might be some cream cheese? Talk about recent data. Yesterday, this occurred. Yesterday, my wife and one of my daughters sat me down to help me see the potential of some cream cheese on my face. I don't know whether I just have more cream cheese than the most, but it appears there is a lot for people to work with when it comes to my life. But the reality is, without others, I often don't see it. I can be vaguely aware of its presence. I can sometimes even smell it, but I can't see it. When it comes to the subtle and deceitfulness and blinding effects of sin, I need others. My friends, you need others. And the truth is, they need you. And so that individual who regularly talks to you, and when they talk to you, it is just super, super negative. There's always things going on with other people that they're not happy about. There's always things that other people aren't doing that they perceive that they should. There's always things that people are doing that they think that they shouldn't. And so to be around this individual is kind of you get unloaded on, but it's all done on the banner of sharing or venting. Don't say either of those things in the Bible, but that's where they are. You know what that individual eventually needs? They need a caring and loving and courageous friend to say, hey, listen, I know your heart is to share and I believe you. But I wonder if maybe the cream cheese of complaint or maybe even gossip is on your face here. Or what about the brother who keeps coming to growth group and he keeps sharing all the time that he wants to grow in his relationship with Jesus. And I believe him. He wants to read more of the Bible. He wants to spend more time with God in prayer. But he never quite does. He never quite gets around to it. And the reason he gives every time is that he's just too busy. But the months go on and they go on and allegedly he's still too busy. You know what he needs? He needs a faithful and loving and courageous friend to say, hey brother, I wonder if this might be some cream cheese. Because you call it busyness. But I think it actually might be pride and self-sufficiency. Have you considered that? That actually your life is being lived again and again and again and it screams, I've got this. 
And it might not be your heart, but I wonder if the Lord's trying to get your attention to something. Or the individual who comes to you and they're constantly angry. It's their fault. It's those kids. It's my spouse. It's my friend. It's my job. Oh, there's so many angry things out there. I'm just a victim. Well, maybe that friend actually needs us to sit him down and say, hey, listen, I think all those things in your life, they do sound really difficult. Genuinely, they are profound heat, and I'm so sorry for that. But at the same time, I wonder if there's an enemy within that is actually a problem here too. I wonder if there's things you need to own. Because it actually says that fights and quarrels in the Bible, they don't just become because of without, they come from within because we crave things. And I want to be faithful enough to ask you that question. Do you think there might be things that you need to own? My friends, I know in Australian culture that is really, really hard because we just all want to be mates. But true friendship is loving people enough to speak the truth in love to them. When it comes to dealing with sin in our lives, we are going to need others. If we're truly going to put off the old self, we're going to need others to help us see the old self and how it still functions in our lives. Likewise, when it comes to being renewed in the spirit of the mind, we need people for that as well, don't we? I mean, when you do actually start to see that there is sin in your life and there are things, what what did you feel very quickly? Condemnation is what you feel. An embarrassment, the fear of man. Oh my gosh, have other people seen this cream cheese? I mean, maybe they're all spotting this. I've never seen it before. We start to feel condemnation. We start to feel, oh, I'm just not good enough. I'm not good at being in the church. I'm not good enough to be with the Lord. My life is just a mess. That's when we need other brothers and sisters to help us be renewed in the spirit of our minds, isn't it? To help us see, listen, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been forgiven of your sin. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. The power and penalty of sin in your life has been broken. Its presence remains, which is why God in his grace is bringing it to your attention. And it will do you harm. And when we're tempted then to give up and it's just too hard, we need people around us to go, don't give up. He's faithful. He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Keep going. Even in the process of being renewed in the spirit of our minds, we need others to help us. And likewise, when we put on the new self, we need others for that, don't we? Because we really like our old clothes. And when it comes to our new clothes, we're not even quite sure what to put on. So I put off lying, okay, well, what do I put on? I, I, don't, I don't know. There's a lot of different clothes. Put off sexual immorality, so what do I put on? No, I, I don't know. It's just, there's just stuff. We often need counsel, people to help us see, well, why don't you put this on? And then encouragement and accountability and prayer. Listen, here's the moral of the story, my friends. We are not designed to grow by ourselves. As John Piper says, sanctification is a community project. We need others. So let me ask you, how are you going in recognizing your need for your small group for growth? Do you see your need for others? Do you attend your growth group in particular going, listen guys, I am here, help me grow. Do you see it? Number two, how are you going and recognizing your need for your small group for life, for all of life, 
See, when it comes to the Christian race, it's not just growth. It is all of life where we actually need others, don't we? Even in this big banner of life, we truly need each other. See, in the words of the great theologian Forrest Gump, he says, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. It's true. You never know what's coming around the corner, do you? There are highs in life. There are lows in life. You simply never know what is coming by this evening, let alone tomorrow. And God knows that. And so he puts us in communities with people that know us and people that love us. People that we need and people that need us. That's why there's so many one another's in the Bible. I mean, here's just a sampling of the one another's in the Bible that we're called to for the glory of God. He calls us to love one another, be joined to one another, honor one another, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, care for one another, serve one another, carry one another's burdens, forgive one another, bear with one another, build one another up, spur one another on. Pray for one another. Offer hospitality to one another. You see, the Christian life is inescapably corporate. And it's corporate because it recognizes you're going to need each other. Given the highs of life, given the lows of life, you are going to need to be in connected and committed relationships with us for the glory of God because you're going to need them at different times. And they're going to need you. Reuben Welch says it this way. He says, of course we believe in the total adequacy of Jesus Christ to meet the total need of the total person. But we must remember this also. He saves in the context of the community of faith. So it isn't Jesus and me. It is Jesus and we. How helpful is that? In a Western individualistic culture, how helpful is it to be reminded that it isn't Jesus and me, it's Jesus and we. So my friends, when we are sad and when we are grieving and when we are struggling, we need Jesus. But we also need somebody to be Jesus to us, to come alongside us. And to hold us and to be with us and to encourage us and pray for us. When we are confused and muddled, unclear as to what to do next, we need Jesus, we need him. But we so often need people to be Jesus to us. To bring us godly counsel, to bring us help, to help us see what Jesus actually calls us to do in our lives. And then to stand with us and love us and keep dialoguing with us. And when we are tired and when we are weary and when we are worn out, we need Jesus. But we need somebody to be Jesus to us and say, hey, brother, keep going. Don't give up. The Lord is faithful. He will be again. We need Jesus, don't we? But we need people to be Jesus to us. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And it doesn't work then that when the going gets tough, we then run to group to look for help. It's really hard in that moment. No, we just give our lives to people, to family, understanding there's going to be highs and there's going to be lows. And particularly when I hit lows, I'm going to need you. And when you hit lows, you're probably going to need me. So I'm here.
I'm here to give myself to you, to care for you and love you and spur you on and pray with you and bear with you and welcome to family. My friends, how are you going with recognizing your need for your small group for life? And then number three, finally, how are you going in recognizing your need for your small group for spurring on? To actually spur you on. See, as I said before, we really are in the race of our lives and therefore we really do need each other. We are called to run hard. We are called to run long. As I've said before, this isn't a fun run. This is a tough mudder for Jesus. It is going to be worth it. It is exhilarating. It is the adventure of your life. But we are always going to need others in this great race. And part of the reason why we're going to need others to help spur us on is because there are so many temptations and distractions that are seeking to pull us away from this great race. There are many temptations and distractions that are unrelenting, that are real, that are ever-present. And we need to be perceptive to that. I mean, for a start, there is the temptation and distraction of our indwelling sin. Listen, if you are a Christian, you still have indwelling sin. It's still there, isn't it? That's why the Apostle Paul says, you know, why is it that I keep doing the things I don't want to do and don't do the things I do want to do? Oh, wretched man that I am. He's aware there's a battle going on here between the spirit and the old self. It's difficult. And in the same way, God has a perfect plan for your life. My friends, your sin has a perfect plan for your life. It's just a different one. See, as I've said before from this pulpit, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. You know, that quote was written by a man named Ravi Zacharias. In the last couple of weeks, it's all come out. He's living a double life. And when I read the report on his life, it actually, it actually it made me feel sick and it was heartbreaking. Been found in numerous cases of sexual misconduct, actually sexual abuse, even, race over, even rape overseas. And as I read the story, I was sickened. I was, I was grieving for his wife and his children and his church and the victims. But I was also sobered because he was right. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Sin never delivers as advertised. And my friends, here's what will happen. As you run hard for Jesus, sin will always be here saying, hey, hey, That ain't going to bring you pleasure. Look how hard that is. This is where it's at. Come over here. It's always guilty of false advertising. It promises so much. It delivers nothing. But it will constantly be seeking to distract you away from running to Jesus and finding the joy of being in his presence. 
My friends, the distraction of indwelling sin is real. It is unrelenting. It is ever-present. And then there's the temptation and distraction of the world. Of the world that we actually live in. I mean, this world is constantly, constantly exhorting us to accept it as home, isn't it? As if this is all there is. Live your best life now and then die because this is all you got. Whereas the Bible consistently tells us, no, this isn't your home. Just like Abraham and Isaac and Moses, you're foreigners and strangers and aliens in this place. Heaven is your home. That's where you're going to build a kingdom. That's where you're going to be with the Lord. This isn't home. That is home. This is a pilgrimage. But the world is constantly saying, no, live your best life now. Live the American dream. Live the Australian dream. Live it up because this is all you got. Constantly seeking to pull us away from the race. Give yourself to this. The world is constantly as well seeking to get us to take on its values and its beliefs and its thoughts and practices. That's the very thing that 1 John 2 addresses us in. I mean, just listen to these words from the Lord. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, that verse can come with confusion because you think, well, what is he talking about there? Is he talking about the world God created or the structures of the world, like family and government? Or is he talking about the people of the world? No, he's not talking about any of those things. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anybody who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves the people. He loves what he has made. He loves the structures. What he's talking about here are the values and thoughts and attitudes and behaviours of fallen humanity opposed to God and therefore living in defiance of God. Values and behaviours and practices that are totally contrary to this word. Values and practices that take on a whole different set of beliefs. And it's so easy as Christians just to look at them and go, oh yes, yes, that's, that's probably good. Rather than going, no! That is not the way he made it to be. It will deceive you. It will not deliver as advertised. And yet, my friends, one of the things I think sadly we are all too not perceptive in is how the values of the world are constantly vying for our attention. Constantly pulling us away from this race. A race where we single-minded understand, I'm running for Jesus and I'm running for that day when I see his face. Our sin will seek to pull us away. The world will seek to pull you away. And then, number three, there is the temptation and distraction of the evil one himself. As if it couldn't get any worse. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. 
He doesn't want us to be naive to the schemes of the devil. The reality that there is one who will do all he can to fan into flame your sin and fan into flame the antichrist nature of the world and do all he can to distract your gaze from this race so that you will go do something else with your life. Friends, welcome to the world. Welcome to Sydney, the place where we all live. So what is the remedy? I mean, these distractions are real. The distraction of our sin, the distraction of the world, the distraction of the devil. How on earth am I ever going to make it? (laughs) Well, the Lord has given us a remedy, a divine remedy. He's made it super clear how we are going to make it. Listen to the profundity and reality of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Behold the remedy of God, my friends. Therefore, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Oh, my friends, what a happy discovery. The Lord has given us a remedy and it is both wonderfully simple and gloriously profound. What is the remedy to ensure that we don't get distracted off this race by our sin or by the evil one or by the world? It is Jesus and we. It is holding fast to Christ, understanding it is him that will make me run. It is him that will get me through. And it is holding fast to others, understanding I need them to spur me on. I need them to not get distracted. I need them to help me grow. I need them to help me get through my life. I need Jesus and I need others. And therein is the divine remedy. So don't forsake meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, thinking that church and small groups, well, they're just programs. No, no, church and small groups are people. And they're people that you desperately need. And they desperately need you. So how are you going, recognizing your need for your small group for spurring on? My friends, if we truly want to run well in this race, then quite simply, we need each other. If we're going to grow, if we're going to flourish in life, if we're going to be spurred on in this race, we need others. And that's why in Sovereign Grace Church and churches around the world, we deliberately build with small groups. So my friends, I want to encourage you then. If fellowship is so important to our race, And small groups then are so indispensable for our growth that may we do all we can to ensure that this same importance is demonstrated in our lives. The people in your small group, you need them. And they need you. So would we give ourselves to the Lord and we give ourselves to others? Understanding it's not Jesus and me, but Jesus and we. And would fellowship then always be our theme? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the gift of fellowship. 
I thank you that you haven't called us to actually run by ourselves. But instead, in your grace and mercy, you've called us to run with others. And Lord, I thank you for others that you've brought into our lives through Sovereign Grace Church. Lord, I thank you for the gift of friendship and the gift of fellowship. And Lord, as we go from today, would we not just see ourselves in the mirror and then ignore what we see? Would we see ourselves in the mirror of your word and then give ourselves to fellowship? And would all glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.